Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling, and this week I talk with Lane Wagner of Boot.dev about how he's mostly bootstrapped his coding learning platform to the most recent month's net revenue of 110000 And we cover a bit of his journey, getting it started, how he was able to bootstrap it, why he raised funding, whether or not that wound up being a good idea, as well as diving in to what got his growth to dramatically accelerate, where he was growing not, not very fast, and then suddenly things ticked up and to the right, and I asked him about that. Before we dive into that, tickets for MicroConf US in Atlanta next April 2024 are on sale. This event will sell out if you're thinking about coming to Atlanta April 21st through the 23rd to see me co-host this event with Leanna Patch and to see speakers like myself, Rand Fishkin, and several others, head to microconf.com US to grab your ticket before they sell out. We had an amazing event just a few months ago in Denver, and I expect the event in Atlanta to be no different. So microconf.com slash US to grab your ticket today. Do you want to reach tens of thousands of potential customers? Between our microconf events, startups for the rest of us, our YouTube channel, our email newsletter, and all the other ways we interact with our large and growing and loyal audience of startup founders. We have a lot of options for you to reach B2B SaaS founders with your product or service. Drop us an email at sponsors at microconf.com. Before we dive into our conversation, if you haven't downloaded the two top secret exclusive episodes of this podcast that have never been in the feed, they're called Eight Things You Must Know When Launching Your SaaS and 10 Things You Should Know As You Scale Your SaaS. Head to startupsfortherestofus.com, enter your email, and you'll get both of those episodes, and each one comes with a PDF guide. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Lane. Lane Wagner, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Rob. I'm excited to dig in to boot.dev today. Your H1 is learn backend development the smart way. Welcome to the most captivating, finger-flying, addictive way to learn to code. That's good marketing copy. Did you write that? Thanks. Uh, I wrote a very similar version, and then I have I have a marketing consultant that also helps tweak it. Nice. That helps. And so to give folks an idea of where you're at today in terms of the business, you have graciously published your revenue numbers on Indie Hackers, and we can link that up in the show notes, but you had some pretty incredible growth recently, even as of four months ago, five months ago, you were at 24K MRR or tw- no, 24K net revenue in, in, you know, gross revenue in the month. But this month, this previous month, which was October of 23, you were at $110,000. That's a heck of a growth rate. What has gone on over that? We'll get into your whole origin story, but what has happened to 4X in four months? It's been absolutely crazy. I was I was on the Indie Hackers podcast. It was actually like back to back with your episode, I think. This is like before they stopped doing the podcast um, or at least took a pause from, a pause from it. Um, but yeah, that was when we were about, about 26K. And the last three months have all been like, yeah, over 80 or 90 we've pulled a few growth levers that seem to have actually uh, had some good returns on them. And we can get into that, but it's, it's, it's primarily YouTube. Like YouTube has been, has been good to us. And our, I do want to dip into it a little bit because I've been doing so much on YouTube myself with MicroConf. We've tried probably three different, I've tried so many approaches on YouTube where it's like, well, I already record this podcast and video. 
can't we just put it on YouTube? And it's like, you can, and no one will watch it. You know, you'll get, you'll get (laughs) tens of views per day. Like it's totally meaningless. And then we tried doing clips because we have sometimes fun clips or we do Q and A listener questions where like we can have a question and an answer and that's going to be the topic of the video. And we publish those crickets for the most part. I mean, basically our audience would watch it and it was not growing the audience. Then we tried another thing and eventually we figured something out. I won't go too deep into it, but we basically, you know, went from 10,000 subscribers to almost 70,000 subscribers in about 18 months. And so we really, we figured out our system and what works. So I'd love to hear from you. You don't have to give up the golden goose and tell everybody what you did, but I'm curious, like what, what your strategy has been to get this type of growth out of, you know, out of YouTube. Good question. So I'm, I don't have, this actually is probably a good thing. I don't have the typical like, well, we grew a lot on YouTube. Actually, my YouTube channel and my podcast channel has had growth, but it hasn't been this astronomical thing that's that's driven all the revenue. Um, it's been partnerships primarily. So collaborations with other YouTubers. So a ton of legwork, Twitter DMs, emails, getting to know folks. I have a podcast. I mean, you were a guest on my podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Getting to know people, writing great stuff, that kind of is adjacent to our product and getting in front of their audiences has honestly been a huge growth channel for us. And a lot of those people come in direct, right? So they'll like hear about us on someone else's YouTube channel or on someone else's podcast and then come direct to our site, which is kind of hard to track annoyingly enough, but we know that it's the only thing working. So like it has to be that, right? Yep. And to give folks an idea, obviously, if, if you've never done back-end development, you, you teach Python and Go. And if you've never done it or you want a refresher or you want to get better at it, I was actually just clicking, you know, right before we hit record, going through your first Python demo course. And I was like, I'm actually learning something. So it is a beta, it's a beta C play usually. I'd imagine you're not selling to businesses, you're selling to end users who either want to become developers or who want to up their chops in these languages. And how is that, I mean, my opinion or my answer when people write in with questions about, hey, B2C, I'm going to do it. And my answer is don't. And right. I, it's jokingly, <laughs> you know, but it's, and there's reasons. I mean, it's not truly don't, obviously, because you're an example of, of a very successful business, did a hundred grand in revenue this, you know, this last month. So it's not don't, but there are, usually churn is high and, and on and on. I've talked about, you know, all that stuff before. As you were building this business, did you know it, it would have the the B2C issues or really does it have the B2C issues? Like, is it relatively high churn and is it a little higher support than you'd like? And is it, you know, is it the typical uh, kind of B2C situation? So it does have some of the B2C issues. Like uh, when I was early getting into this space, I was speaking with another founder of a, a company in the same industry who's, who was farther along than we are. We've kind of started to catch up now, which has been great. But uh, they they were they were quite a bit farther along than we were back when I was talking to him. He's like, just so you know, like this base uh, churn is high, and he's not wrong. Like this is not a tool that if you like it, you'll just use it for the rest of your life, right? At the end of the day, whether someone succeeds with the product, goes through the course, learns a ton, gets a job, or fails, they kind of get through the part that initially got them to sign up. And and there there's obviously exceptions to that. Some people just love taking every new course that comes out. They're big fans. But as a model, it is is fundamentally different than than a SaaS company. And then on the consumer side, actually, we have not had that second thing you you mentioned, which was support issues. I think that's partially been how our entire team of three are all engineers. And we've kind of engineered our way out of some of those problems, but they could have been bigger problems than they've been. You made a comment that I want to dig into. You said, 
this is not really SaaS, but technically it is a subscription for a tool to learn. So technically we could say, oh, it is software as a service, but I think of it, the job to be done of boot.dev, it could not be software. It could be someone driving to your house. You know, the job to be done is teaching you how to, to up-level your skills or frankly, just to learn from scratch, right? Python and Go. But when you say, you know, you kind of thought it was SaaS, but it's not, what do you, what's your thinking behind that comment? Yeah, this, this really like, I think set me back quite a bit, especially in the early days, just being confused about the business. This is my first company. It's so deceiving for several reasons. First of all, boot.dev is not like some of the other platforms that are, are, are essentially videos, right? Where it's really just a content play. You could put it up on any CMS and have a product. Um, it's a very interactive kind of gamified environment. So like in my head, I'm telling myself, you know, this is a different thing. This is, this is not just content creation. This is like, we're building a product. So that was like mistake number one, because exactly as you pointed out, what matters is the job to be done, right? For the customer. And because the job to be done is training, <laughs> then like you fall into that industry. Having a different product is fantastic from like a branding, finding a niche perspective, but the business model, right, is, is kind of fundamentally locked into the industry or whatever the customer is trying to get out of it. Training. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a real, that's a good solid realization to have because then you realize the pros and cons of a training business versus trying to compare yourself to SaaS benchmarks, for example, which just aren't going to make that much sense. I was impressed because right before we got on the call, it says, try your first course for free. And I clicked and I expected it to be a video teaching me to do something like Udemy. And it's not. It's like fully interactive software that's in the browser. And there's a Python interpreter. Then the code appears and you submit it and you, you click on it. And I was like, oh, this is, this is pretty well done. This is not something that someone could replicate in a week. Because there's, there's code behind this, you know. And I, I say that because I know that there are a lot of courses out there to learn programming, back end, front end, whatever. But you've built something here that feels pretty unique, at least, well, certainly for Python and Go, I think. Are you the only, the only way to, to learn these on the internet in this fashion? Most learning platforms, not only, as, as we mentioned, are, are kind of video-based, but another thing is a lot of online learning in the programming space is based on the front end, right? So we're going to get you started on the front end. And if you want to learn back end, you can go watch a video or maybe you can go get a CS degree. For whatever reason, it's so like under-catered to. And this really blew me away. It, it kind of goes back to the origins of the company in the first place. I was a hiring manager. I managed a team of Go developers. And whenever I opened up a new job position, I'd get like 10 applicants. And my colleague who ran the front end side of the stack for the same company, he'd open up a job application and get 150 like bootcamp grads or, or, or you know, people who had been through online learning platforms for, for the front end side of the stack. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, only half of the backend developers on my team had CS degrees. It's not like we like required credentials. I think there's an argument to be made that learning the backend side of the stack takes a little bit longer, maybe 10 or 20% longer than, than the front-end side. It's got a, a couple more moving parts, but it's not significant. And just no one was doing it. <laughs> so we kind of jumped on, jumped on it, uh, and I'm, I'm glad we did when we did, because I needed a, a full 18 months of absolute floundering in order to finally start to figure out how... Uh, how to, how to get traction. That's some, sometimes that's how it goes. <laughs> and I mean, let's talk a little bit about that, your origin story. It's you, you were writing technical blogs that developers were starting to read and you were getting traffic. And then what was the impetus to be like, well, devs are reading this. I want to teach them something. Yeah, so I've always been really into teaching. I was like a tutor in college. Um, just really enjoy, like, <laughs> my wife, you know, says, I really like mansplaining things. And there's definitely truth to that. So there's some founder fit uh, in, in, in this sort of a company already. 
but no, early on it was blogs. Yeah, I was blogging on Medium. I was blogging on the, this other domain that we used to have, QVault.io. And it had nothing to do with courses. It was like whatever was interesting to me at the time, right? Whatever I'm learning about in the programming space, which of course was all backend oriented because I was a backend developer. And then it was really when I was this hiring manager, right? Hiring people, realizing how hard it was to find good backend developers. And, and it was particularly tricky back in 2020 when like the market was really good for developers. And I was like, we need to be training people on this stuff. I don't know why we're only training people on HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. That drives me nuts. Because I'm so, folks here know that I once wrote code and I consider, I back in back in my day, you did all of it, right? I you get <laughs> HTML and you did some CSS and you did JavaScript with no, it was before jQuery. I eventually used jQuery, but uh, there weren't the, the all the frameworks for the front end. But the bulk of my code was always back end. So I would consider myself, if anything, a back end developer. So it's shocking to me, that, you know, I guess this shows my narrow lens of it, that all the sites cater to front end. And, and I mean, I say this with full disclosure, like through Tiny Seed, I'm invested in front-end mentor, uh, which is a front-end development education, you know, so I, I'm not against them at all or any, or, or learning front-end dev or whatever, but it just seems so weird to me that there would be this bias towards it. Is it seen as like a simpler, oh, it's easier to learn or it's just easier to get more jobs in it or is there just, no, there's, because there's more jobs on backend, right? Yeah, according to the last Stack Overflow survey, there's like twice as many self-identified back-end developers as front-end developers, which kind of gives you like a demand. I mean, there's a supply and a demand aspect to that, but that's just that number. I think there's a few things that go into it. I think the online learning world is, it's hard to build boot dev. Let me put it that way. Like it is hard to teach back-end development interactively in a browser. It's not as hard to do with the front-end because JavaScript, CSS, and HTML all render in a browser natively, right? So to build this interactive experience in a browser for backend developers is there's a lot more engineering work that you have to put in up front. But I'm a big fan of, I don't know if you've read Seth Godin's Purple Cow book. I think in the long run, that's actually a really good thing for us because like to replicate it, it it's a moat, right? It's, it's something that sets us apart. Right. Usually the things that are hard to do, if you grind through them and you slept through them, you get to the other side. A, you're glad you didn't know how hard it was going to be when you started because you never would have done it. But then you get to the other <laughs> side and you're like, no one's following me through that pile. You know, <laughs> it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be alone yeah. over here for a while. And that's, that's a good thing. So about just over a year ago, it was about 14, 15 months, Boot.dev was doing 6000 a month and you quit your day job. And obviously you've had really nice growth since then, but what gave you the confidence to leave an engineer, you were an engineering lead, so I'm going to assume you were making pretty good money, uh, or an engineering manager, right? You're actually managing people. What gave you the confidence to leave when you only had 6K of MRR? So let me go back like six months before I quit my job. The year before that, Boot Dev had essentially been around for a year. We were under a different domain name at the time. And we'd had like no growth. And I, I felt like I'd been grinding just as hard then as I am now, right? Just really trying to get this thing off the ground and getting to $1,000 in revenue for a given month felt impossible, like so hard to get traction. But that six months up to like leading up to when I eventually actually quit my job, there were a few things that I feel like we actually kind of figured out. One was rebranding, one was niching down. So like originally I was just like, I just going to teach Go, right? Like I know Go development, I'm just going to teach Go. That niche was not strong enough. It wasn't unique enough or distinct enough. There's Go programming books. So we, we kind of started to figure out some things and we started to get traction. So that was really what gave me the confidence, even at just, you know, $6,000 in revenue to be like, all right, I'm out of here. Because yeah, I was making almost, you know, 200K 
uh, or right around 200K in total compensation at the time. And you also raised some funding, which I was really intrigued to hear because when I think about starting a, a site like this or a tool like this, in my head, I'm like, oh, this is totally bootstrappable. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is like something that you really could. Now, I know there's a software component to it that, is, that as you've said, takes a lot of, it took a lot of time to build and it takes time to, to continue to expand. But I was a little surprised by the fact that you raised, is it public? $330,000? Yeah. Is that a yep. public number? Yeah. $330,000 in August of 22, around the same time you, um, you left your job. Why did you decide to do that rather than bootstrap it? Yeah. So I would say I'm, I'm like uh, 50, 50 on the scale of like, you know, risk adverse, right. To, to risk taker. I'm, I'm probably not quite as uh, much of a risk taker as, as most entrepreneurs, but I, I definitely have some of that in me. My wife is extremely conservative, uh, very, very conservative. So the idea of me quitting right as we're about to have our second baby and not be able to take paternity leave, like paid paternity leave, made her quite nervous. So raising some cash and being able to take a salary, even though of course it was a much smaller salary without all the medical benefits and everything, definitely just gave us so much peace of mind. So hindsight being what it is, you know, there really was no reason to raise money. We've been profitable this entire year. We have more money in the bank now than when we raised. But at the time, just knowing the information I knew, right, I, I had projected, I was like, it would be really great if by... What's the date? November of 2023, we have in a month where we make $30,000, right? Like that was what I was like, that was the goal. And like, here we are at 110, but like, that's what I was planning for. So, and you never could plan that you were going to grow like this. So it's that, it's that whole thing of just because the decision didn't pan out the way you thought it would, doesn't mean it was the wrong decision at the time, right? You, you made the best decision you could with the information. Yeah. And so is that when you think about a long-term play here, you know, you have investors, investors typically want to return at some point. Usually that's an exit. There are some exceptions, right? Like the tiny seed terms and spark Toro, where you can pull out dividends because you're structured in a way that that makes sense. And you pay, you know, pay investors dividends over time. Again, I, and I have a, I have one or two angel investments of my own out of 20 that do that too as well, that actually pay dividends. Well, I guess I sparked or I'm an investor in, and then there's two others. But the usual one is to have an exit, right? I'm gonna, I need to sell within five to 10 years or whatever it is. Also, founders get bored and, and decide they want to sell eventually. But have you, have you, you're still early. I mean, you're, you're really, I know you're three years into it, but really you're full-time for a, about just over a year. So I, I don't expect you to be <laughs> thinking about what's gonna happen 10 years from now. But does that cross your mind of like, how do I, do I pay investors back? And you know, what's the future hold for me? Yeah, absolutely. So when I raised with the investors, first of all, these investors are awesome. I actually knew them from before, which is why I I only pitched one investor. <laughs> I raised from that investor and that's all the invest the raising we've done. And I don't think we're going to raise anymore. But the conversation originally was like, "Hey, I have this this platform, it, it, we seem to have found the traction thing. And I have different ideas for some growth levers we can pull. I think they'll work, but I want to quit and go full time on this. I've been doing it, you know, 15 hours a week or whatever. I don't know if we'll sell this company. <laughs> like that was a conversation I had to have with the investors. Like, I don't know if this is like a thing that we sell. Like, I don't know if this is a sellable thing. It's not a SaaS application. It's not a recurring revenue tool, right? It's an education platform. It, it certainly could have an exit. There's no reason we can't, but I just had to be super upfront with them. Like maybe we just do distributions, right? So they, we raised a million dollar valuation. So they bought a third of the business. We could just do distributions at that point. Right. Cause at typical valuations, you, you get 
half a percent, one percent, two percent of a company. And then it's like, right. great, for every hundred thousand dollars you pull out, I get fifteen hundred dollars. It just isn't. It doesn't make sense. But if if they if the investors have that much, that does make it a little more, little more palatable. It also changes how you like compensate employees, right? So rather than just doing the standard like we're going to give employees options and then maybe they have this big windfall when we go public. I've had to be a little more conscientious, right? And and so like we we basically have like a split program where like we do the options thing just in case we sell, but also kind of a profit sharing plan on top of that just because we don't know if we're going to sell. So, yeah, it's nice to have that to to provide both options. I'd love to hear if there has ever been a moment in the life of Boot.dev where you were really not enjoying it, like the worst lows where you were either up at night or you were, I want to throw in the towel, this sucks, why did I become an entrepreneur? I should go back and be a full-time employee. 2021 was an awful year. So I wrote like the first course and launched like a very, very small MVP of the platform in 2020. I can't even remember exactly the month. It was, it was right after COVID. So it was like summer, spring of 2020. But it was like a new fun project, like no customers, right? I did all the classic things, like had zero distribution channels. So like I just published this thing no one used and I thought it was kind of fun. 2021, I was, you know, trying to get customers that entire year and we had effectively no growth. And there was a there was a time I remember it was like early in 2021. I was like, can I just get rid of this thing? Like, it's causing me more mental, like, it's it's more taxing on me mentally than it's worth. And and I can't just put it down. Like, it's making, you know, 500 bucks a month or whatever. So I I can't just like, I can't just kill it, but it's destroying me mentally. So anyways, I went on Reddit and I was like, someone want to buy this thing? Like, does anyone want this? And the result of that conversation was actually that I found someone that was interested in helping me market it. And great person. They were super nice, super smart. They were in a different industry. We tried for all of 2021 to market this thing and we absolutely failed. Like we had no growth in 2021. It was terrible. Um, So I actually bought my section of the business back from him. You know, he put in a bunch of sweat equity over the course of the year. And at the end of the year, I just bought it back from him. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. So we we tried a few more things and, and it started to work. Beginning of 2022, we started actually seeing some growth, right? Getting up into the two, the three, the 5K monthly revenue numbers. What were you doing differently? Because there are a bunch of people listening to this right now who have a business (laughs) doing 500 or 1,000 and it has been and they're like, I don't know what to do. And not that your solution will work for everyone, but I'm just curious if if you can touch on, if you even know, because sometimes you don't, but like what what did you start doing differently that got you from the, the plateau to actually, you know, a pretty good business? There were three things that we all did in fairly rapid succession. So I actually can't be sure exactly which one was the most impactful, but I I will list all three that I've had time to reflect on. The first is that this guy that I was doing marketing with in 2021 was not an engineer, was not a developer. And it is really hard to write good copy, to come up with good messaging for an audience that you don't know very much about. So one thing I've definitely learned over the last couple of years is thinking about hiring a marketer or thinking about using a contractor, marketing almost is not a specialty in and of itself. It's like you need to be good at marketing to this audience or you need to be extremely familiar with what they want, what they need, with the content they consume online. Um, you need to hang out where they hang out, right? So I just I just found that that wasn't working and that actually 
at least in that moment, I could do a much better job just because I knew how to talk to these people. That was a big turning point. Um, Rebranding the site was a big one. I I read this book. I'll probably reference it a couple times because I really do think this was probably the biggest turning point for the company was just reading this book called The Purple Cow by Seth Godin. So it's all about finding a unique niche Um, because this is a crowded market. Like there's a lot of people teaching courses online um, in lots of industries, but especially programming. Programmers love to share their knowledge, right? So you really have to figure out how to stand out. And we did a bunch of stuff visually with the name, with, you know, focusing on the back inside of the stack that really allowed us to start getting more word of mouth marketing. Cause nobody wants to talk about another learn to code platform. <laughs> like no matter how good you think your courses are, like you, you need something else that's remarkable, something else that someone will, will talk about. That was another big one. What's the, what's the purple cow for boot.dev? What is it? The thing that people talk about? We have two which might be antithetical to the thesis of the book, but I still think it's correct for us. <laughs> the first is the focus on the back end. Like just, just no one else is doing this, um, which is frankly kind of lucky. Like we kind of stumbled into that. I just happened to be a back end developer and everyone else is teaching HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So that's the big one. And you could even sub niche and say, Go is not the most popular back end programming language, but it's the one that we focus on primarily. And so again, we get a lot of attention in like Go communities for that reason. And it's much, much easier to get traction in a small community than in a large one. Uh, it's not even close, which is another thing that I, I really made a mistake of in the beginning. QVault.io back in the day was, was a very generic. I was just branding it as this like, come learn to code. And we happen to have this course on Go and this course on Python or whatever. But like the messaging was all extremely generic. Because you like to tell yourself that this thing could be big, right? Anyone could use this thing. And I think that's such a huge trap. Was that both Purple Cows? You named the one of niching. Oh, yeah. The other one is the gamification. Mm. So this one's more recent. Okay. I, I've always enjoyed e-learning that leans heavily into like the admission that we're human and that we like hits of dopamine, right? And that that we have all these things, uh, these very human things. We're not mechanical when we learn. And there's not a lot of learn to code websites that, that lean into that. So we've just every month, it feels like we're leaning harder and harder into that messaging. I don't know if you, you saw on the site, it kind of feels like this fantasy game. Our mascot is this wizard bear and everything we do is around like unlocking achievements and earning XP and getting on the leaderboard. And that's all really good and, and is based in, you know, pretty well-known psychological principles about like getting yourself to keep coming back and keep learning, but it's also just super unique. Nobody else is doing it. Very nice. Yeah, I do. I'm, of course, I'm a fantasy nerd myself. And so I like the visuals on the, on the site. <laughs> seems like you're catering pretty well. Before we wrap up, you know, you had commented earlier about how you originally thought of Butatev as SaaS and it's not really SaaS, it's training. And also before we hit record, I was asking you for MRR and you mentioned your gross revenue of 110. And I said, oh, what's MRR? And you said, well, MRR is like 50K, but that's, n- that's not the right metric to look at for this business. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so like Stripe shows us our monthly recurring revenue. And out of the box, Stripe is very kind of defaults to SaaS kind of metrics. And so for a long time, I really kind of worried about that one. There's a couple of reasons I don't think it's important or as important for us. So, and, and again, this threw us off. We've been a subscription revenue company, and that really, to, to a new founder that doesn't understand all these different business models, really confused me. It's kind of, I was comparing myself and my metrics to other SaaS companies, and that's not the right way to think about it. So, for example, our net revenue in, what was it, October of 2023 
$110,000. Our recurring revenue, about $50,000. Our revenue that came in that was recurring was like $30,000. There's a distinction, right? Like the like, actual yes, money the that monthly. came in the door, right? Yeah. That's, that rolled over from yearlies last year and monthlies of the month before. This is not a tool where people stick around forever if they like it. People drop out for all sorts of reasons. So like our churn is much higher than the traditional, what is it, 1% to 4% of a, of, a, of a SaaS company. A healthy SaaS company, yeah. Of a healthy SaaS company, exactly. So yeah, what we're actually kind of optimizing for is just lifetime value of a customer, right? Is our lifetime value of a customer in a healthy spot? And can we acquire customers at a price that's lower than that? Uh, ideally more, like much lower than that, and then you get better margins, right? But every year, like this is another interesting thing because you actually do have some advantages. This all sounds like worse. This is just like worse. This is worse than SaaS, right? But there are some nice things. Word of mouth is much higher in this industry than in other industries. So if people really like your thing, they're much more likely to share it than I think you is like the baseline in maybe SaaS tooling, um, B2B SaaS tooling specifically. And for someone listening who's trying to get their head around why you have $110,000 in revenue, but... MRR is 50k and actual recurring revenue is 30k. It's we won't go through the all the math because on a podcast it would be terrible, but the idea is that when you sell annual plans, you can't recognize, you shouldn't recognize all that revenue in that month. So usually, let's say for easy math, that, your your annual plan, you have an annual plan for $348 a year and then you have a monthly membership for $49 a month. So you sell a lot of annual plans because it's almost half the price to just pay annually, right? It's about a 50-50 split of about half our customers do annuals, half do monthlies, but of course there's more revenue immediately from the right. yearlies. Yeah. So you get a bunch of that cash up front, which is great. It means you have money to market. It means you, just getting cash up front is always good. But for someone who, who's never thought about how, let's, I'm going to do a simple math example of if I sell an annual plan for $1,200, what I should do if I'm doing my accounting right, is divide 1,200 by 12 and recognize $100 of MRR per month for the next 12 months. So that's what you're doing with your 348. That's why the numbers are all different. It can be deceptive in either direction. If you do all annual plans, you get a ton of cash up front, but your MRR seems really low. Yeah, we think about it as essentially we're selling a product that's being financed. <laughs> over an amount of time, right? So because these dollar amounts are so low, we, 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 don't, we don't actually have like a contract for you to sign and we're doing loan terms and interest. It, it's more just like you want to get access to this thing for six months. You're financing the total cost of the course over the six months that you're accessing it, which makes us think about it Again, in terms of lifetime value of the customer, um, which is you know somewhere between like a hundred dollars and three hundred dollars, there's kind of averages in there. But that 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 third point about the revenue that I made way back when that I'm sure everyone's forgot about was we, we do care about this number that is the actual dollar amount coming in every month, <laughs> and it's it's even the cash coming. In. Yeah, and it's even lower than at, at present because of our really fast growth that we've had recently than the actual MRR. Right, so like our SaaS MRs for like 50k, the actual cash coming in from recurring revenue every month is down in the, like the 30k range. But that's an important metric to just keep in mind because it's like if we do no marketing, if we bring in no new people this month, how much cash is coming in the door? So keeping a tab on that is actually really important. Lane Wagner, thanks so much for joining me today. If folks want to keep up with you on Twitter. You are Wags Lane. That's W A G S L A N E. 
and of course, boot.dev if they want to see what you're working on. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thanks again to Lane for joining me on Startups for the Rest of Us. And thank you for listening this week and every week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 688.